Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always take a few times, a few moments for spiritual preparation. It is important for us to recognize that whenever we sin, while it does not uh, affect or threaten our salvation, it does indeed breach our fellowship, our ongoing rapport and intimacy with the Lord and the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. As long as we are walking in fellowship, as long as we have no unconfessed sin in the life, then God the Holy Spirit freely works within us as we walk by the Spirit to produce spiritual growth. But when we are out of fellowship as a result of sin, that part of his ministry is uh, shut down, as it were, and the focus of his ministry then is to get us back in fellowship. So we always take a few moments Uh, before every class, just to reinforce the principle by way of a a teaching technique to remind everybody of the importance of being in fellowship, to have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, which simply says, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge to God in the privacy of our priesthood in silent prayer, if we admit or acknowledge to him that which we have done wrong, the sin that we know of, then he is faithful and just not only to forgive us of those sins which we confess, but to cleanse us from all other sins, those that we don't remember, those that we don't know are sins, those that we have forgotten about. The slate is wiped clean, and we are back in fellowship moving forward in our spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we take time to reflect upon your word, we are overwhelmed with the significance of what we have before us in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. As we take time to reflect upon how they were revealed to us through the prophets of the Old Testament, apostles of the New Testament, how they were written down, preserved, and passed down through the generations. We are indeed impressed by the way you have providentially preserved your word for us. And what a privilege it is for us as 21st century Christians to have the entire word in our uh, possession, to have it in our laps, that we can study that which you have revealed to us 
that we may know how to think properly about reality, and that we may know who you are and all that you have provided for us and how you are working in history and will bring all, all things to resolution in the future. Now, Father, as we study in these, the teaching and the final book of Scripture and the revelation of Jesus Christ to John the Apostle, we pray that as we study these things that it might not be simply a realization for us of what will happen in the future, but that the implications of these doctrines for our present spiritual walk will be brought home to us through God the Holy Spirit and that we would be responsive to application of these truths as they are made clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we turn to Revelation chapter 6, I want you to turn with me by way of review to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Last time, and it's been three or four weeks since we were in our progression in Revelation, last time we had a a brief review in relation to the Israel-Turkey trip and what we saw in Asia Minor in relation to those seven churches discussed in Revelation 2 and 3. But now we're back on track rolling forward in the sealed judgments of Revelation chapter 6. In the last lesson, I related these sealed judgments. In fact, all the judgments that we see in Revelation, the sealed judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments, which comprise the heart of the tribulation period, within a context of what God is doing in human history in relationship to judgment. The key word that we will see today in Revelation 6 is the word wrath. This word is found also in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The relative clause there who at the end, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, is a description of men who are in negative volition. They have rejected the knowledge of God and God consciousness. They may have sought some other God. They may have uh, tried to deny God completely. And this is the approach of the atheist. The scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And you see the same uh, same terminology here as Paul states, in verse 21, because they, although they knew God, indicating that every human being knows God exists. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed within the soul of every single human being the awareness of God. There is an internal God consciousness that man becomes aware of that is in tune with his creation. So that as a person grows and begins to observe the world, the universe around them, God's creation, there is a, uh, a sympathy, as it were, a sympathetic cord between the creation, the external creation of God, and something within the human soul that is related to the fact that we are in the image of God, so that there is a uh, this sympathetic reverberation at God consciousness, and every human being knows that God exists. For in some way, the trees, the flowers, the stars in the heavens above all proclaim the existence and the power of God. This is what 
uh, Paul says in verses 19 and 20 of Romans 1, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, that is that internal dimension, for God has shown it to them. This is the external dimension. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In other words, every human being is in complete, inexcusable knowledge of the existence of God. But because of the sin nature, negative volition, man seeks to suppress that truth. And he suppresses that truth, according to verse 18, on the basis of un unrighteousness. Now, when you suppress the truth, you have to replace the truth with something. And when you start reshaping, re-imaging truth in your own soul, this does tremendous damage to your own soul, and you begin to act as if you were God, and you begin to reconstruct reality according to your own likes, dislikes, hopes, and dreams, and according to the lust pattern of your own sin nature. Every human being does this to one degree or another because that is the propensity and the direction of the sin nature. The more we suppress truth, the more we reject truth, the more we have a fantasy world constructed in our soul that is further and further at odds with reality. So that the more one is a truth suppressor, the more one is living in a fantasy world that is more and more divorced from reality. And the further you get away from reality, the more the decisions that we make in life will not reflect things as they are, but only things as we dream they would be in our little fantasy, in our little carnal fantasy world. And at some point, we will run headlong into the basic laws, the basic moral laws that God has structured into the universe, and sooner or later, we will face certain kinds of consequences. These are described within this passage under the concept of wrath and judgment. I pointed out in the last lesson that there are two ways in which God brings judgment upon individuals and upon nations and civilizations. The first has to do with internal dynamics. These are built-in principles that God had established, such as we reap what we sow. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you will burn your hand. That's an instant reaction and a simple illustration. If we do various other kinds of things where we are living in a fantasy world, sometimes the consequences may not show up in our own life for 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. So there are, uh, when there, we have this principle that you reap what you sow, the consequences of your volitional decisions can eventually accumulate to the point that they snowball and we get uh, destroyed by our own fantasy world. When man suppresses truth, he constructs this alternative reality, which is actually just an irrational fantasy. And unfortunately, we live in a world today when more and more people have rejected God, rejected biblical truth, rejected the basic establishment principles of the divine institutions, personal responsibility, marriage, family, uh, human government, and national distinctions. Many, many people 
do not even uh, want to acknowledge that there are absolutes in this particular area. So once you start rejecting the truth about personal individual responsibility, you view man as nothing more than a uh, sort of a uh, cosmic accident, that he's nothing more than a uh, combination of various mechanical physiological forces, he's not really responsible for his actions, or you start uh, trying to find excuses, his family background, his economic situation, social status, whatever it might be, then instead of emphasizing personal responsibility, then uh, he is excused, and so that's, that irresponsible behavior is allowed uh, to continue. Uh, sometimes we see this in parental training where a parent living on a fantasy concept that somehow every little baby that comes into the world is so cute and wonderful and they're basically good, that they don't understand the role of the parent in instilling self-discipline into the heart of that sinful child through external means of discipline. And so parents just let kids do whatever they want to do, and as this child grows up, he learns to manipulate the environment around him, learns that there really aren't consequences for wrong behavior, and this begins to accumulate in his soul. And by the time you have a 15-, 16-year-old, you have a sociopath in training, and by the time they're 25 or 30, they're wreaking havoc on the world around them. And you multiply that by about... Uh, five or ten million, now you have the breakdown of society because all of a sudden everyone else has to figure out what to do with these individuals who've never learned how to take care of themselves, never learned how to be responsible. And so it becomes more than an individual problem. Now you've got a, a systemic social problem. And when this multiplies even more through more and more fantasy living, then you end up with not only breakdowns in the nation, but you have a breakdown of the entire system. You have other kinds of fantasy living, people living in debt. You have a fantasy world about the fact about credit cards and living on credit that somehow it's somebody else's money or it's free money. Fantasy concepts about uh, socialism and government that somehow government makes all the money so they can take care of everybody and provide everything from health care to free education and all of this just somehow is supplied by going out and, and picking more money up off of the money tree. And the more a government and a culture lives on this kind of a fantasy, that there's no accountability, that they can just do whatever they want to, eventually the money system is going to collapse. When you get into other areas of divine institution, thinking you can remake the, in, the laws related to marriage, that uh, we can have same-sex unions. Well, same-sex union by any other name is just a marriage. And, uh, and there's this, this uh, fantasy circumlocution to try to get around calling it what it really is. But once you break down marriage, then that snowballs even further into further deterioration of family, further deterioration into uh, the nation. Eventually, there will be an internal collapse 
that occurs in any society, any culture, any national entity because of that. All that is related to the internal dynamics of reaping what one sows. As part of that, as a nation goes through these kinds of, or, or any people or civilization goes through these kinds of uh, choices, these negative volition choices, God in turn sort of pulls back his restraint. And that's what we saw last time in Romans 1, uh, that there are these references in Romans uh, 124, therefore because man has re- substituted something else for God, therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in verse 24, repeated again in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions related to speaking about homosexuality as a divine judgment upon a culture. And then in verse 28, again, we have God giving them over to a debased or perverted mind. The point that I was making is that you have these sort of internal dynamics that God has built into a culture, built into human behavior, so that there are consequences to bad decisions that flow out of those bad decisions because they're made in a way that is divorced from reality. Then there is a second way in which God brings judgment. This has to do with external dynamics. That is the direct intervention of God, sometimes through supernatural means where God brings judgment upon a people or upon a civilization. And we have examples of that in the scripture, in the Noahic flood, in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, at the time of the Exodus when God used the ten plagues. And these were supernatural events, even though they may have used some natural phenomena within them, there was something that was a certain enhancement of those natural disasters that made the judgments of a supernatural character. You have other judgments, such as the way God gave a certain miraculous ability to the uh, Israelites as they went into the land of Canaan, or God just supernaturally intervened, for example, at, at Jericho, where the walls fell down uh, only through his supernatural power, and that gave victory to the Israelites. So we see these two categories of judgment, the internal dynamics, which is just the accumulation of bad decisions and then their consequences, and then the external judgments where we see something that's supernatural added as an enhancement to the natural judgments. We see both of these going on in the sealed judgments. When you go through the first four sealed judgments, they are related to that first category of internal dynamics. One thing leads to another, and there is a natural progression through those first four sealed judgments. But once we move from the fourth sealed judgment to the fifth sealed judgment, then we see a supernatural uh, enhancement that occurs, and there is a new uh, dynamic at work in these judgments. So let's just review a little bit and get the overview of these sealed judgments. The sealed judgments come at the beginning of the tribulation period, sometime in the first year to two years. We don't know exactly. There's no specificity in Scripture, but there must be room between the end of the sixth seal judgment 
and the beginning of the trumpet judgments for uh, the trumpet judgments to also take place. And all of this is within the first 42 months or so of the tribulation period. We have looked at the first uh, four. The conquest is the first horse. It's not the Antichrist per se. It is a messenger from God depicted, or the judgment is depicted as riding the white horse. This brings conquest into the picture, and it is in the uh, it's in the context of that conquest that the Antichrist will come to power, and we studied him, that we will not know who he is during this this age, during the church age. He is not revealed until after the tribulation period, and he may not be clearly known until he enters into that peace treaty with the nation Israel that kicks off the last period in history known as Daniel's 70th week, the last period for for Israel's history, that is, Daniel's 70th week, that last seven-year period, also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, known as the time of the tribulation. Uh, one thing that we should note is that there have been some commentaries, some common, uh, commentators, and some prophecy scholars who have believed that in terms of the timing of these events, that only the first seal takes place in the first half of the tribulation, and all of the rest takes place in the second half of the tribulation. The problem with that uh, view is that it's based on the fact that the Antichrist enters into this peace treaty and they fail to recognize that the peace treaty simply secures peace for Israel. It's between the Antichrist and Israel and there is going to be this period of peace only for Israel. doesn't say anything else about what's going on in the rest of the world. So this first seal involves this conquest through various means which naturally leads to open warfare, the red horse, the second seal judgment. This leads then to famine. This is the first of several famines that are mentioned in the Scripture. This is a famine that is greater than any famine known in history to this point and will be uh, the least of the famines that will be seen in uh, the time of the tribulation. Of course, when you have famine and you have war, this then leads to death. So we see that these first four seal judgments have an internal relationship and a natural progression and are the result of the internal dynamics God has built into the warp and woof of of human history. We reap what we sow, and as God pulls back his restraint of evil, then the consequences will be multiplied. What we will look at in terms of the fifth and sixth seal judgments uh, this morning, the fifth judgment relates to martyrdom, and the sixth seal judgment refers to the wrath of the Lamb. This is the first time in the book of Revelation that we see this term wrath, which is used 11 times in the book of Revelation. And it's a key word indicating that A major theme in the book of Revelation is God executing judgment and resolving the problem of evil in history. This is one of the great uh, concerns that man often brings up, is how can a good God allow so much evil to go on without without dealing with it? 
Um, and many secularists, atheists say, well, either that means that God isn't good or it means he isn't loving or he isn't powerful enough to, to really do anything about it. And they completely reject the idea that perhaps unknown to man, unperceivable by our limited experience and limited, uh, limited uh, reason, that perhaps God has a morally justifiable reason to allow evil to continue and to flower for a season, but eventually God does resolve the problem of evil and bring judgment against those who are the perpetrators of evil, and there is a final accountability. That's part of the message of the book of Revelation. So we see that there will be a seventh trumpet judgment that will be that will come up in the uh, eighth chapter and our, excuse me, seventh seal judgment, which when it is opened, uh, reveals seven more judgments, which are the trumpet judgments. So just by way of review, we have the <clears throat> statement in 6.1, I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying as a voice of thunder. So we have the four living creatures associated with God's throne room, His holiness, and that tells us that what lies behind God's judgment and the, and the outworking of divine judgment in the tribulation is the righteousness and the justice of God. That is what the tribulation is all about. God is executing his justice on the evildoers on the, in the world. The four living creatures are associated with the first four judgments, which are also indicated by four horsemen, usually referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In verse 2 we read, And I looked, and this is John speaking, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this is the thrust of the first judgment. It is the idea of conquest. The first seal focuses on a rider with a bow, but he has no arrows. This indicates that it is a relatively bloodless event. It is not the violence of full-born war, which we see uh, coming up. He wears a crown. This is the Stephanos. It's a victor's wreath, indicating that he is bringing that victory comes to one, and this will be the Antichrist. He goes out conquering and to conquer, and this is a personification, as we studied, of the Antichrist's conquest. Then we came to the second seal judgment in verses 3 and 4. In the second seal judgment, peace is taken from the earth, and people will, will kill one another. Nations will kill one another. Nations will rise up against nation, as the Lord predicted in Matthew chapter 24. And he will bring a great sword. This is a broad sword, a rompia that is mentioned here. And this is brought, uh, indicating this conquest. And there is blood and death. So by now you should be out of Revelation, I mean Romans 1, and be uh, turning in your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 6. Now, when we come to the third seal, this brings famine on the earth. 
This is a result of the war, the chaos and calamity that comes as a result of war. And we studied this, and we saw that uh, as the third living creature announces this judgment, uh, John sees a black horse. He sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand, indicating the weighing out of money and showing that there is going to be a... a uh, uh, famine that occurs and the quart of wheat, quart of barley will go for a day's wage, a three days wage for the barley, which is a less expensive uh, product. But there's no harm to oil and no harm to the wine. And I pointed out when we uh, studied this last time that this indicates that those who are, uh, those who are wealthy, those who already have will still be able to afford that which they have, but the, those who are impoverished already, those who live in third world countries, are the ones who are going to feel the brunt of this. And we see something like that now. Now, I'm not making a comparison saying this that we see today is part of the fulfillment of this. I'm just saying that this is, we see a trend right now that gives us some idea of what may happen in the future. For as the price of oil has gone up, the dollar has devalued, we've seen the use of biofuels and people converting uh, land to the production of corn and other things for biofuels, plus a number of other factors. I understand that. It's not just a production thing. We've seen the price of corn, the price of beans, the price of rice, uh, rise uh, phenomenally, and in third world countries, these are your staples to the diet. And so we've had food riots in various places around the world over the last six months. Now, these are small and minor in scale compared to what will transpire in the future, but we can just get a hint of what will happen in the future once uh, it becomes so costly to even buy the basic staples of life. So the third seal judgment then brings uh, into focus brings into focus the uh, economic disaster. Then we have the fourth seal judgment. Fourth seal judgment is found in uh, verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, "Come and see." So I looked, and behold. A pale horse, and this should be translated something along the lines of an ashen horse. It is a horse that is uh, about the color that uh, you might see someone have when they're seasick. It's sort of that pale green, uh, sort of deathly pale type of uh, type of color. And so this uh, fourth rider is a uh, has a pale green color. The word in the Greek is chloros, which is where we derive our word chlorophyll. And it has a, uh, it can, it's used to describe something of a somewhat mottled appearance. Uh, it's sometimes used to denote the color of a person who is in sickness in contrast with the appearance of, of health. Uh, Sophocles compared it to uh, the color of sand, uh, generally, it has the idea of pale or pallid. In uh, modern color schemes, it's probably something close to what they call sea foam. 
So it's, it's used of mist, of seawater. It's a rather pale or bilious complexion. Thucydides used it of the appearance of people who were stricken with the plague. So this is an appropriate color for those who are about to die, and death is the primary focus of this fourth seal judgment from this ashen or pale horse. What we see is that a fourth of the population on the earth is killed. They're killed with the sword. Uh, here it is the uh, uh, Machira, which is a sword indicating warfare. Uh, it brings, as a result, it brings famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, which is very interesting. But as we go forward, I want to take a moment to just focus on a couple of things in the text. In verse 8, the ashen horse, uh, as, as we read in the New King James, it says, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, or a pale green horse, and he who looked on it had the name death. Literally, his name, and then there's no verb, his name Death. The absence of a verb uh, gives a certain drama and emphasis to the statement. It's the only of the horses that is named in this way, and it is called uh, death. He who sat on it had the name death, and Hades was following with him. So this is the first of several passages in Revelation that connect death and Hades. In fact, every time Hades is mentioned in Revelation. It is connected with the presence of death. Hades is mentioned in a couple of interesting passages in the Old Testament. In Matthew 11:23, Jesus said of Capernaum in their negative volition, Capernaum was his hometown. Uh, some of the remains of Capernaum are what is pictured in the background of the slide. Jesus said, and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, this would be because uh, this was his dwelling place, this was where he lived, where Peter lived, this is where he, near Capernaum, was where he conducted much of his ministry. So you, Capernaum, are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. This is also one of those passages which indicate that the Lord and God the Father and their omniscience not only know what will happen in history, but they also know what could have or what might have happened in history. They're the only ones who can accurately play the game what if in regard to history. They know. So there is this condemnation that they would be brought down to Hades, and Hades was a popular concept. Not only did, was there a biblical background for the concept of Hades, which was related to the Old Testament concept of Sheol, but within pagan Roman, Greco-Roman culture, there was also uh, something comparable. And uh, talking about Hades is simply the place of the dead, the departure of the dead, and not too far north of Capernaum. And that time it was probably a good uh, day or day and a half walk, but today it's just about an hour and a half drive, is a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi, there was in the ancient world a temple to the uh, Greek god Pan. And that temple was situated over that hole that you see in the left center of the background picture. And this hole goes down very deep in the ground. 
and the temple was a place where people would come and they would sacrifice to the god Pan who was viewed as a guardian of the gates of Hades. And this hole that you see was considered to be the gates of Hades, and it's located in a rather massive rock structure right there at Caesarea Philippi. And this is the location when Jesus asked Peter the question, who do men say that I am? And so Peter said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're Moses or Elijah. And then Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, well, you are uh, Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to Peter by then saying, and I also say to you that you are Peter, a play on words between Peter's name, uh, Petros, and a larger rock, which would be the term used to describe this rock in the background, Petra, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, he's not talking about this literal rock. He's talking, he's alluding to the rock of his identity, that he is Jesus, the Son of God, and he is the Messiah, and it is upon that principle, that reality that he is the Son of God, that he is the eternal second person of the Trinity that has been incarnate in flesh, Jesus is saying it is on this reality that I will build my church and the gates of Hades, and he's standing there by the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So every time we go to Israel, we go here, and it's always fun to take pictures of one person or another trying to keep someone else out of the gates of hell. So Hades is this common concept, but it's not just this sort of generic idea of a place for the departed. In one passage in Scripture, we're given a little more detail about Hades. So if you're interested in looking at the passage, uh, you might hold your place in Revelation 6 and turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 is sometimes thought by uh, what I might call revisionist theologians today as a parable. However, it's interesting how so many concepts today get reshaped and rethought as people try to rethink uh, reality to fit whatever it is they want it to be. And this affects even scholars and their uh, just because they're scholars in somewhat conservative schools doesn't mean they're not free, free of academic arrogance. And so they come along and say, well, this is just a parable and this isn't reality. The difference between this story and a parable is that parables, the other parables that we have in Scripture, do not ever give proper names to the major people in the story. For example, the story of the prodigal son. You don't know his name. He's not given a name. The, the, the brother's not given a name. The father's not given a name. They, it was a story that was told to illustrate a point. It's a parable. But in this story, one individual has a name. So he is treated as a, an actual flesh and blood human being that could be investigated. And so we have the story here of Lazarus and the rich man. We're told in verse 19, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. 
But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores. He is not attractive. He probably smelled bad. He is not someone that this uh, well-dressed, uh, well-heeled, uh, wealthy individual would have wanted to spend any time with. He was extreme, not only unattractive, he was repulsive. This beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. This is a euphemistic way of saying that he's basically a dumpster diver taking the leftovers that he finds in the rich man's garbage for his meal. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, this tells us something. Even though this is a story about Lazarus and the rich man, it tells us that at the time of death, our souls are escorted to their destiny by the angels. Today, the destiny is a little different from what it was then, as we'll see from the story. But for us, at the time of death, the angels transport our souls into the presence of God. So at his time, the angels carried his soul to Abraham's bosom. Then we're told the rich man also died and was buried. Now, it could have been some time later. It's not the same time. Jesus is, is compressing the story to make his point. In verse 23, he says, And being in torments in Hades, he, that is the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So what we see is that Hades has two compartments. One compartment is uh, paradise, sometimes referred to as Abraham's bosom, and the other is a place of torments. And there is this inviolable gulf this, that is fixed between the two places so that you, the people in either place cannot move, but they have some knowledge of what's going on in the other location and can see to the other location. For the rich man can see that Lazarus, this beggar that he had ignored, rejected, uh, that was lying outside of his gates is in Abraham's bosom. And he himself is in a place of torments. And the Greek word there indicates a place of physical suffering. So even though he no longer has the material flesh and blood body that we have now, it indicates, again, that there is some sort of, uh, of interim body between our present body and the body that one receives at the in resurrection, whether you're a believer, the resurrection body for eternal life, or the unbeliever, a type of body that will survive for eternity in the lake of fire. And that these bodies have properties that enable them to feel pain and suffering, but it is not dis totally destructive. So the rich man cries out, to Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, notice the specificity here that this indicates a kind of 
body. There is, he mentions a finger and a tongue. He's not just talking in uh, figures of speech here. He, he is th- extremely thirsty as part of the fact that he is in a place of extreme heat and flame. For he says, I am tormented in this flame. It is not the lake of fire, but it is a precursor to the lake of fire. But Abraham says to him, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, this is the rich man speaking, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Now, this is the point of this story. It's not germane to where we are but in, in Revelation, but it's a very important point. The rich man says, I beg you, therefore, Father, send him to my father's house. Let him be resurrected, and as a man who comes back from the dead, they will believe him. What a miracle. They will believe him and let him go to my brother's house, my five brothers, that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. You see, we often think that if somehow some something miraculous, something dramatic, something profound, people just saw the resurrected Christ. Many people didn't. They didn't believe either. If people would just see uh, someone like the later Lazarus, not to be confused with this Lazarus, the Lazarus of John 11, raised from the dead, that they would believe if they would just see miracles. In fact, in the, in the 70s and 80s, there was a somewhat popular movement in the charismatic community called power evangelism. And the basic thesis was that somehow the modern church had just rejected the power of God and re- were rejecting the concept of miracles and that signs and wonders continued. And if we would just believe in signs and wonders and couple signs and wonders with evangelism, we would have... Uh, many, many more conversions and billions of people would get saved. The only reason they're not saved is because so many Christians lack the faith to trust God for miracles. Well, power evangelism didn't work in the first century, didn't work in the ministry of Jesus, and it doesn't work in this passage because the most miraculous, the most powerful thing that you can present anyone is not a miracle. It's not the evidence of someone who was raised from the dead. The most powerful witness evidence that you can give somebody is the testimony of the Word of God because that is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And this is the response that Abraham gives him. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man objects, verse 30, and says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Isn't that a great point? What confidence that gives us as believers in evangelism that we don't have to have all the sophisticated arguments to turn every objection The power is in the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and somehow God uses us in all of our failties and foibles to simply present the truth of God's Word. And because it is God's Word, 
and is empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is the strongest and most powerful evidence and testimony that we can, we can give. And even if it were coupled with miracles and people rising from the dead and all these other things, that is only secondary, and as Scripture presents, that's just confirmatory evidence. That's not the real power. The real power is in God's Word. So from this lesson, from this story of Lazarus and the rich man, we learn about the fact, as Jesus is emphasizing, that it is the testimony of God's Word that is the ultimate testimony. But in the story, we learn various facts about this time after death at that time before the cross, that those who died went to either Abraham's bosom or paradise, or they went to torments. And paradise, we're told, is a place now in heaven, for in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul ascended to paradise. So at the, after the cross, when Christ had descended to Hades, he made announcement to the uh, angels who are confined there that he had uh, gained the victory over at the cross, victory over Satan, and that their doom was secured. And at that time, then, he ascended to heaven, uh, not the ascension, but he went to heaven and took paradise with him. So paradise has been moved to heaven, Second Corinthians 12.4, Revelation 2.7. So now all that is left is torments. This is Hades. Hades is the place where unbelievers go when they are absent from the body and they are in the lake of, uh, not the lake of fire, but they are in torments, which is like the lake of fire. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus refers to himself as the one who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Those who are there can only be released through the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will release them only to judgment. In Revelation 20, verses 13 and 14, that judgment is described. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, Abraham's uh, this is the second death. So I don't know how Abraham's bosom got stuck into that particular slide. Okay. Back to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. So I looked and behold a pale horse. The name of him who sat on it was Death. Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, I want to notice a couple of things about this source of um, this, these judgments here. We have mentioned uh, killing with the sword, with hunger, and with death, and then with the wild beasts of the earth. Four things are mentioned here. The sword, of course, emphasizes violence, emphasizes the warfare that is going on around the world, and so there will be some who are killed as a result of that warfare. Second, there are those who are killed as a result of the famine that continues to increase. This is a second famine that goes beyond that 
of the third seal. So this is the, uh, we might say, the second famine that occurs that is mentioned uh, during the tribulation period. Then others just die uh, from other causes as a result of uh, the tribulation and the different things that are going on, and they're uh, summarized with simply the term death. And then last but not least is mentioned by the beasts of the earth. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? Why in the world would the John emphasize that they're killed with the beasts of the earth? I mean, how many people do you notice mentioned every day in the paper are killed by the wild beasts of the earth? I, mean, I didn't notice that this morning. Every now and then you may hear of some somebody here or there that gets mauled by uh, some animal or attacked by a rabbit animal, something of that nature. But this is not a very common occurrence. And yet it is a remarkably common occurrence during this particular period of time. As we think about this, you ought to th- there, there is a doctrine of the wild beasts and the environment. And if you go back to Leviticus... And you look in the Old Testament, places like Leviticus 26.6 in the uh, blessing section at the end of uh, the Mosaic Covenant. God promises to Israel that I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down, the implication being lying down in peace at night without fear of criminality or, or, or being attacked from an external enemy. And none will make you afraid. And then God says, I will rid the land of wild beasts. So in divine viewpoint, the absence of wild beasts, lions and bears and you know, mountain lions, ravenous animals, wolves, all of these kinds of animals are a hindrance to productivity. That as we think about a biblical doctrine of the environment, we recognize that clearly from Scripture that man is placed as the responsible steward over the environment, but he is to use the environment to uh, develop the natural resources so that there is productivity. And in the process of productivity, this means that the natural habitats of certain wild animals will be destroyed as man tames the land and as man builds cities, and that this is not wrong. I'm sorry, Peter, but uh, this is a biblical doctrine, and uh, the concept of preserving natural habitats for certain marauding animals is not biblical. In fact, what the Bible emphasizes is under the blessing of God, these animals will disappear and will be removed from the land. But it's also interesting that in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where Moses is reminding the people of what will happen under under divine judgment when they are disobedient to him, and he's summarizing the judgments of the five uh, stages or five cycles of divine discipline, Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 21 to 24, the following. They, referring to Israel, he's talking, uh, he's presenting God's, uh, God's statement about Israel's disobedience. Deuteronomy, he says, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. So the problem in Israel referred to here is that of idolatry, breaching the first commandment. 
They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. So God's talking about how he will bring uh, others to uh, against Israel. He says, I will, I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations on the mountains. And this is an allusion to ultimate uh, judgment that comes about during the tribulation period. Deuteronomy 32.23, I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. And note verse 24, they shall be wasted with hunger. See, that's what we see in the seal judgments devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction, again, emphasized in the seal judgments. I will also send against them the teeth of the beasts. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And in light of the wisdom of the modern environmental movement, which, of course, keeps us from drilling for oil and developing natural resources so that we you know, can avoid the kind of problems we're having right now, you can thank a liberal for that every time you fill up at the gas station because they have bought into a pseudo-reality, a fantasy world that comes out of an evolutionary framework of the environment. They're just like the old pagans and just like Israel was worshiping idols. And thanks to the uh, pagan environmentalist movement, you have the reintroduction of wolves into Montana and farmers and ranchers in Montana have a terrible problem now with the increased wolf population as the, these wolves attack their sheep and their cattle. You have the introduction of uh, bears into various habitats all throughout the Northeast in New Jersey and Connecticut and Massachusetts, places like that. When we were living in Connecticut, one of my favorite stories was that a man at North Stonington Bible Church, which was not very far from where we live, probably less than a mile, went out in his backyard, and there was a, a bear on top of his rabbit hutch. And that bear was trying to get to his rabbit, so he called animal control, which is the legal thing to do. I thought, you know, I'm a Texan. That is not what I would do. <laughs> so he calls animal control, and animal control comes out, and all animal can, control can do is pull their car up to the rabbit hutch, turn on all the lights and the siren, and try to make a lot of noise to scare off the bear. Because this is a protected species, so we can't kill it, even though it is you know, damaging to, our, to the economy and threatening to this individual. One lady in the church looked out her window about five minutes after her kids came in from playing in the backyard and watched a, a bear run across her backyard. And this kind of thing is happening more and more frequently throughout many populated areas in, uh, around this country because of uh, these misguided policies. So thanks to the liberal pagan environmentalists, they are reversing what was a policy that comes out of a biblical view of the environment, which is removing these predatory animals so that man can develop farmland and ranches and and uh, and develop the economy, which is man ruling the earth, not in a destructive way, but in a in a positive way. Now, some people don't like it when they hear that because basically we're raising a generation of 
young people who have been taught the false environmental gospel since they were in nursery school. But this is just one example of how the Word of God directly challenges how an unbeliever thinks about everything in life. It's not just about the gospel. It's about how you think about creation. So these are the kinds of things that will happen in the tribulation period in a much more enhanced way because of the policies that uh, environmentalists have. There will be an increased presence of these wild animals in the tribulation period to such a degree that that is part of the judgment that God is bringing against uh, civilization, that many will be killed by wild animals. This just isn't a few because, as we see from this, from this passage, a quarter of the earth's population is killed through these four means. So it emphasizes for us the Bible has a consistent worldview, a consistent view of reality from Genesis to Revelation. And there is nothing inconsistent about its view uh, of anything that God has created. And it reminds us that when man operates on his paganism, operates on his fantasy world, that he puts, puts into motion forces that lead to a complete uh, self-destruction, these, these unintended consequences, the law of reaping uh, what you sow. And the result of that is going to eventually be, be part of the calamities that occur during the tribulation period. But the great hope that believers have is that God is in control that man will not destroy himself, that the planet will not be destroyed through all of these fantasy problems like global warming and everything else, because God is in control and God will bring things to pass the way he has decreed them to be in the scriptures. So as believers, we can relax and we can have a uh, divine viewpoint view of not only the future, but it impacts how we understand the present because God is concerned about nature itself, so much so that he did more to solve the environmental problem than anyone else in history, because the basic environmental disaster was the disaster of sin. And because of Adam's sin, Genesis 3 says that all of nature was cursed in ways more profound than any environmentalist could ever imagine. But what is going to reverse that curse and lead to a redemption of creation, according to Romans chapter 8, is what Jesus Christ did on the cross and his ultimate return to the earth when he comes at the end of the tribulation period. And for every believer, every individual human being, we can have redemption by putting our faith alone in Christ alone and trusting in him as our Savior, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we are thankful that we have your word to give us insight into reality as it is and not the fantasy of the culture around us as they seek to constantly remake, reshape uh, the creation, reshape history, reshape uh, origins of man according to their own desires, according to their own whims as they continuously suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Father, we're thankful that your word gives us not only clear understanding of the beginning, but also the end. We understand our destiny. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. You can do that by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, became a man, and went to the cross. And on the cross, he paid a judicial penalty for the sins of every single human being so that simply by accepting his payment on our behalf, we can have eternal life. We can have forgiveness of sins, and we are eternally justified with an eternal destiny in heaven that can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.